The Grassroots Network summer podcast series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on Turnkey Vacation Rentals, contact Mark Viola at mark.viola at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the grassroots network in your community. Jerry Bovino, but we're back with the cool philanthropist Richard Lipsy from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the Red Stick Man. Good morning. Richard, we're, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I have to tell you, Richard is one of the most impressive people that I have ever met. If you looked at his CV, his curriculum vitae, it is unbelievable. He's going to tell us about how he was at the Kennedy autopsy. He's going to tell us about his philanthropies. He's going to tell us about his business experience. We've got a show for you. So let's start at the beginning. What's your connection to Aspen, Richard? We started coming out here 18 years ago. We just fell in love with it. We wanted to get out of the heat of Baton Rouge. Came out here. We had a cousin out here at the time. Showed us around. Picked out a house we could rent for the summer. And we, we did that and came back several years. Ended up buying a condo. And we've been coming every summer since. The typical story, once yeah. you get to this town, it hooks you. You know, it's hard hard to get away. It's hard to beat. The restaurants, yeah. the people are so friendly. Uh, we just enjoy the heck out of it. You, you hit on, the to me, what is the essence of Aspen because there are a lot of places that are beautiful with mountains and streams and ski slopes, but Aspen has amazing people. I mean, the intellectual firepower in this town is Nuplu Ultra. Well... They do, it is between the Aspen Ideas Festival, which we try to take part in some of when we get here, but the music, uh, the concerts at the tent are just fabulous. The 4th of July, that, that's got to be one of the most it's, exciting it's, concerts there is. And so we do the music, we do the uh, speaker, listen to the speakers, and the activities going on in Aspen, which we just love. You can pick out any amount you want, any time of day. The festivals, the antique show, it's its all just so warm. It is. It's an amazing place. And you're here with your beautiful wife, Susan, yeah. who you've been married to for 51 years, did 50, you say? 51 years. And uh, two daughters and three grandchildren. Beautiful. It's much grandchildren are much better than children. Have you noticed yeah, that? Oh, I love them. <laughs> I love them. We have one coming out here soon to visit us, so we'll, we'll have fun. Was there a secret, Richard, do you think, for staying happily married all these years? I, I, I don't know that for me there is a secret. It's like you go day to day, but what, what's your secret? Communication. Absolutely. Listen to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, happy Listen life. Listen to right. your wife. No, it's a mutual thing. You've got to love each other. You've got to be kind to each other. And you've got to give in, you know, when it's time to give in. 
and you learn that over the years, and um, you just have a really good time. Treat each other with respect. Yeah, one of the things is you have to choose wisely from the start, though. That, that, you know, that's right. So many people are so ill-matched, and they're attracted almost that well, I, opposite. I, I, I was 25 years old, and Susan was 19. And my mother always told my brother and I, if you're not married by the time you're 25, I'm going to pick out your wife. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but it just worked out just great. I picked out the... Uh, little sister of my college uh, fraternity brother and did very, very well. <laughs> now tell me about your family's history. When did they come to America and where did they come from? My father was born in Bialystok, Poland and came to this country when he was six months old, 1905. And my mother's about was second or third generation here. Her family came from Alsace-Lorraine. But uh, my mother was born in a very famous place, same place I was born, Selma, Alabama. Ah, Selma. You were born in Selma. Selma, huh? a very short distance from Montgomery, as you know. And, uh, but we left there when I was five years old, 1943, and moved to Baton Rouge for my father had an opportunity to run a hide and fur business that my uncle had started and during the war and moved there and liked it and bought the business. And it evolved over the years from uh, the hide and fur business to the Army-Navy surplus business to the sporting goods business. And that's what I've been in all my life and absolutely loved every minute. My vocation is my avocation. There you go. If you... If you, if you do something you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. That's right. And that's how I felt about medicine. You know, I go to work every day, you help people. I couldn't believe they pay you for stuff like that. That's right. So there was a story about seersucker that you wanted me to remind you about. Well, seersucker, it's a family thing. My wife, Susan, her grandfather brought seersucker, which seer, seer sheer, shikhar, from India means milk and honey. And, oh, see, I didn't know that. And he was in New Orleans, lived in New Orleans, and found this uh, where the Englishmen were using this uh, lightweight uh, material, and he brought it to the United States to make work clothes for the people in the South. And in the 20s, he discovered that, well, if it's good enough for that, and the men walking around New Orleans and all around the country in these heavy winter clothing, he'd make a seersucker cotton suit for summer. And he did. And it lasted until 1977 when Susan's father and her co father's cousin decided that there was nobody else in the business that wanted to run it. They sold it to Palm Beach. Were you manufacturing? Is the family there, there manufacturing seersucker? There were the family manufactured seersucker and the clothing. And just so it, it, years went by and the Haspel brand bounced all over. And I noticed in 1995 it was for sale. Uh, when they sold it in 77, I, I could not afford to buy it. I, I was starting another business that I just wanted to start and... You know, financially, I just could not do it. But in 1995, uh, it was for sale. I bought the company. My wife's, my mother-in-law, Bertie Haspel, was still alive. 
And I thought it would be great to bring it back into the family. And we bought it, we did, and we've had it back since then. It's grown. Now we're, even, my daughter runs the company, uh, as she does our uh, firearms company. And uh, my daughter's done a better job than I ever did. And well, that's what a parent hopes for. She, she's spreading out into sportswear, sports shirts, you know, belts, socks, ties, the whole deal. And uh, so she runs both our companies. But uh, it, it's just been fun keeping the Haspel name alive. Well, that's Since a 19, nice thing. You can bring it back after all these years. 1909, huh? a long time. And you can still make money in Searsucker. Who would have known? You, you could. It's so popular. And it's at the height of its popularity now in the summer. So if you were, you had a lot of businesses, a lot yes. of businesses, were they all successful? They were all successful. I've, I've really not uh, had one go under. Now I've had a few investments like everybody right. else. Right, I know. Well, as soon as you get out of out. what you're doing, That's you can right. lose money. But the businesses, the the main three businesses that I've started. Which are firearms, uh, sporting goods, and seersucker. And a telephone business. I, I started back in 1997 in Baton Rouge when the small cell phones first came out. They, the service was just horrible. You couldn't get anybody on the phone if you had problems with your phone, etc. You know that. And people were switching all the time. So I decided I'd open my own little cell phone, uh, cell phone store and give service. And we did open one store. Now we have about 115 stores and throughout the South and Southwest. And uh, it's just turned out to be very successful. We, we're Sprint retailers. So we, it's, it's, that's, that's been a That's very impressive. And it came later when you didn't even... Right. Realized you were going to be in a new business. It, so, is there is there a secret? Do you think to business? Uh, you're advising some young kid who's looking at what you've accomplished, incredible string of successes, uh, and now you're giving back to your community with philanthropies. But what are the secrets to being successful in business? Jerry, you've got to two things. One, you've got to listen. When people talk to you, you can learn a lot more listening than you can talking. And the second thing is, which I learned a little later in life, I, I didn't grow up with this so, you know, just in me, I, I, but I learned to focus. And when you want to do something, I encourage people to focus, pick a niche that nobody else has, and kind of focus on that, and you will always do well. Don't, don't try to be everything to everyone. You don't want to be a blunderbuss. You want That's to be right. a 22 long rifle like aimed at one thing. That's right. And uh, and you can spread out after that and, and then you can take some chances. But but I, I tell these young entrepreneurs, you know, pick something out you want to do, focus on it, get good advice and, and stick to what stick to what you you know best. Yeah, the other things that I would say cuz people have asked me, you know, like how have you accomplished this or that? I, I always have two pieces of advice that I think are good. I say the most important fertilizer is the shadow of the farmer. <laughs> if you're there and watching, if you That's think right. you're going to run a business from, uh, from the Bahamas, it's never going to work. You've got to be there and watch it. That's right. And the other thing I always say, Richard, is you need a little luck. Okay, every deal 
There's a hundred times where it could go wrong. And if you just have a little luck right at that point, we know guys as smart as us, as hardworking as us, who weren't able to accomplish much. And it's not because they didn't try. We maybe had a little more luck. I think that's the success of some of these young entrepreneurs, the guys that started Google and the guys that started Yahoo and so on. They, they had young people. They, walk, they were with them. They walked around. They touched them. Uh, a professor, marketing professor I had, I'll never forget, he said, you know, when you're starting your business, don't just stand there. Walk around. Touch the people. See what's going on. You've got to walk around and understand what they are doing, what you're doing. And, you know, that's all part of growing up and uh, learning how to run a business. And my mother taught me there's an old Yiddish proverb, if you want your dreams to come true, don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. On that note, we're going to take a very short break to thank the underwriters who generously support us here at Grassroots Television. U.S. Trust, the premium name in private wealth management. Bovino Law Firm, David Bovino and Lauren Roberts, uh, right here in town. Bishop Plumbing, Heating and Air Conditioning, and Silver Peak Apothecary. Get high, but responsibly. When we come back, we are going to start with the story of the Kennedy assassination. Our guest right here, the cool philanthropist, was the only military officer to witness the entire autopsy. You're going to get first-hand information. We're coming right back. Support for this grassroots community television program comes from U.S. Trust. From wealth structuring to investment management, U.S. Trust's global perspective, unique team approach, fiduciary platform, and more than 200 years of experience provide for the kind of insights, solutions, and expertise that have a worth all their own. Bovino Law Firm, a boutique law firm specializing in complex litigation, real estate, leasing, and sales. Corporate organization, trust, and estates. Admitted in Colorado, California, and New York, David Bovino and Summer Woodson at 970-925-4445 or www.bovinolaw.com. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, serving Aspen and Vail for over 40 years. Shoe covers, name tags, IDs. Let Bishop worry about your heating, plumbing, and air conditioning issues so that you don't have to. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, 925-8610. Silver Peak Apothecary is the first cannabis retail store in the city of Aspen, offering a fine selection of bud, flower, and infused cannabis products, as well as accoutrements from glassware, oils, soaps, along with books, t-shirts, and educational material. Silver Peak Apothecary is located at 520 East Cooper Avenue in downtown Aspen and is open daily from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. For more information, visit us on the web at www.silverpeakapothecary.com or call 970-925-4372. You know, we're back with Richard Lipsy. Is that how you pronounce it? Right. The cool philanthropist, and he's also the overachiever. This guy has done everything, believe me. <laughs> so 
Rich, I wanted to just, before we get into the Kennedy story, you must have had amazing parents to motivate you to work so hard. What do you think it was about your family milieu that allowed you to flourish in the environment, in Louisiana, in your time? What did you learn from your parents? That's an easy question, Jerry. My, my parents were very involved civically, charitable-wise. Uh, my father worked diligently with the Boy Scouts and other things like that. My mother started the American Cancer Society in Baton Rouge and the Heart Association and the finest cancer center in the South, Maryberg Perkins. But what they taught me was in business, and we were in the retail business for the first 35 years of my life, I was, uh, of business life, and they taught me you take out of the community, you've got to give back to the community. So that, that they taught me that very well. So Boy Scouts you were talking about, uh, my father worked for the Boy Scouts diligently because I was a Boy Scout, my brother was a Boy, Boy Scout. So in 64, when I got out of the service, I went on the board of the Boy Scouts. Now here I am, 76, almost 77. I'm still on the board of the Boy Scouts. And you have a Silver Beaver Award, which uh, is very impressive. And I've been on all, you know, all the officers of the board of the Boy Scouts. But I, I love it. You've got, that's youth. You've got to train them. They're the ones that are going to be our leaders tomorrow. And the two best places to train leaders, the United States Army and the Boy Scouts. And you were in both. I was in both. I was in the Boy Scouts. I thought the Boy Scouts was a wonderful thing. It taught me about the outdoors. It taught me about getting along with other kids. Um, they're, they're, right now, they're, 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 they do the same thing, but they're focusing on character, build character. And I think that's extremely important. Yeah, I thought they got off track a little bit when they were worried about you know, in the scout oath, a scout is morally straight, yeah. and then we had the whole gay question, yeah. and then a scout is reverent, and yeah. I remember that scout trout, if you right. remember, was his parents were atheists, so he thought, I'm an atheist, and they didn't want to let him. I thought that got off track with some of those yeah, they, moral they things, but they're doing better now. They're no, no, they're, they're back on track, and they're, they're doing fine, and they're doing a lot of very good work in inner cities, and that's very important. Scouting in inner cities has become a major project for the Boy Scouts. And there's an interesting story. I read about a judge in Oregon who takes care of troubled youth, okay, kids and their teenagers who get in trouble, and he's trying to reverse their downward death spiral as a pilot. We call it a death spiral. You get tighter and tighter turns, and they go right into the ground, uh, metaphorically. And he asks every kid in court when they're up for whatever criminal charges, he said, did you ever have any interest in the outdoors or hunting or fishing? And not one of them ever said yes. Well, that, my father's old saying was, take a boy hunting and you'll never have to hunt for the boy. Oh, there you go. That's a beautiful thought. We'll talk about hunting and guns, which is a subject you're an expert on. But let's get to the Kennedy story because it's an amazing story. You were in the military. Start. Give us the background. Well, the background was I went to Louisiana State University, LSU. And go Tigers, went, right? Okay. Right, the Go Tigers. And I went through ROTC. And when I uh, graduated, I, would suppose I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, for my uh, basic training, and we were all supposed to go to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. 
What happened? You were a second lieutenant. I then? was a, just a young second lieutenant. Green around the years. Exactly. What year was that? That was 1962. Okay. January of 1962, and so I ended up. The that was during the Berlin crisis. So ended up sending us all to Camp Polk, Louisiana, not but 175 miles from my 150 miles from my house, and we were to open up uh, Camp Polk and turn it into Fort Polk because the reserves were there and it was going to become an important army base. So I, I did that, I, I was there. A new commanding general came in. Uh, I, I had been there several weeks, so I knew the post very well by then. So the chief of staff asked me to give this new general a tour of the post, which I did, and that night the general said, uh, I'd like you to stop by my house, meet my family. That was pretty nice. That, that, yeah. that was nice. So, so I stopped by his house, had a cocktail, uh, met his family, and he asked me to be his aide. I didn't even know. I, I, you know, I've been in the Army now six weeks, seven weeks. I didn't even know what a general's aide was. So, <laughs> But you knew it was I, a good job. <laughs> I, I knew it was better than what I'd been doing. And, and, and so... Uh, I became his aide, and, and a couple of months later, he was transferred again. He, he was about, you know, three or four years from retirement, and he knew the chief of staff of the Army very well, and he moved him, General Wheel, uh, Philip C. Wheel, to Washington, D.C. as the commanding general of the military district of Washington, which is the top military officer that for the defense of Washington, all of the protocol, all, all of the uh, parades, funerals, anything of military matter in Washington, General Wheel was in charge of. And you were his aide. And I was his aide. We got there, just briefly, we got there the first day. We go to see the uh, chief of staff, uh, who was Earl Wheeler at the time. And General Wheeler tells my boss, he says, Glad to meet uh, Lipsy. He, General Wheeler knew General Wheeler very well. He said, you know, you can have a colonel and a major for aides here in Washington. And General Wheeler said, oh, no, no. Lipsy's very, can do everything I want, you know. So they promoted <laughs> me from first, second lieutenant to first lieutenant. There you go. So now, now I've, I've got a field promotion. And uh, so it was really interesting, you know, for all those months and a couple of years that I was with General Wheeler. Uh, I had staff meetings where three and two and three and four star generals would come in, and I would call all of them to attention when General Wheel would come in. So, and I got friendly with Curtis LeMay and Maxwell Taylor and uh, Earl Wheeler. Curtis uh, LeMay was the Air Force general Cur who orchestrated the, the whole South Pacific. That's correct. Uh, he was including Hiroshima. I mean, he, LeMay was in he, charge of all of that. And he, like, they called him the bulldog, and he, he was. Everybody thought he was the toughest man in the world, but he it, it was always very nice to me. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about him when we get a little further into the Kennedy story. So go ahead. So, all right, so now you're the aide to the commanding general in Washington who's in charge of everything in D.C. area. And then where were you when you heard JFK was shot? Well, I, General Wheel's protocol was we would pick him up at 6.30 in the morning uh, at Fort Myer. We, we lived at Fort Myer. We were stationed 
uh, at Fort McNair, which is about, you know, a mile from the Capitol. And so every morning we'd pick him up, take him to the office, then about quarter to 12 or so, we'd drive, we had a driver and a sergeant, and we'd come back home to Fort Myer, drop General Wheel off at his quarters for lunch, and I'd go across the street to the BOQ. Then at 12.30, uh, or 1.30, I'm sorry, we, we, we would come back and pick up General Wheel and go back to the office. So that, that was our standard procedure every day. So we drove up to General Wheel's house, had the radio on in the car, and just standing there, the sergeant and myself waiting, General Wheel always come out promptly at 1.30, and here on the radio, the president's been shot. That's all I heard, the president's been shot. And when I heard that, I ran towards General Wheel's house, and General Wheel came blasting out of the back door. He said, have you heard the news? I said, yes, sir, we just heard it on the radio. So we came back, jumped into uh, the limousine, and headed out of uh, Fort Myer, going back to our office at Fort McNair. At that point, was it calm, or was it sort of an internal chaos going on? No, at that point, it's still calm. It's, let's, let's find out what the story is. We have the radio you on. You didn't know he was dead yet. You just Did knew not, he was no, shot. We only knew he was shot. So we, we head out of, the Fort McNair, out of Fort Myer, and we had two phones in the car. Early, early in those days, days that was very it, unusual. It, it, and they were the ones you'd have to pick up and listen, and then somebody would answer, and you'd say, call this telephone number, you know, whatever. Then we had another one, a red one, that was direct to the White House. And it had never rung in the whole time or been used that, you know, I was in the service. So just as soon as we got to the gate at Fort Myer, that red phone rang. And it was Mrs. Lincoln, John Kennedy's secretary, saying, General Wheel, come to the White House. So, boom, we started out, white, uh, out of Fort Myer. That's when it was chaos. We got to the Memorial Bridge there between mm -hmm. Fort Myer and Washington, and traffic was stopped, people were out of their cars, and, and literally by then, it just like two minutes later, uh, it comes across the radio uh, that the, the president's been shot, presumably the president is dead. And uh, so we head to the White House, we get to the White we had to go up on the sidewalk and drive on the sidewalk across Memorial Bridge, go down now, were uh, you driving? We, no, no, no. We had a sergeant. We, we, we you had, had a, a driver. driver. A very good, seasoned master sergeant driving us. And he took down, we went down the wrong way on Pennsylvania Avenue in different ways, but we got to the White House. Well, as soon as we were there, it was chaos. Everyone was crying. Everyone was, you know, upset. You know, is this something that's going to happen to all of the uh, a vice president or whatever. and Nobody you know, knew at nobody, that point. Nobody knew we were, at that point. The whole country was sort of in a state of shock. I remember it. it I remember it, where it was. I was. Everybody remembers where they were when they were told the president was shot. But just a, in a short period of time that we're there, and we, we'll get to that maybe just a little bit later, you know, they capture Lee Harvey Oswald, 
and, and it, it, it turns out to be an assassination and not a plot against the United States. So it was maybe, not, maybe, <laughs> but it was not, not a lot we could do at the White House. So we headed to our office to start planning uh, what the next move was. Because you knew by, you'd by be then, integral to we, that we, next we, move. We did because we're in charge of state funerals. There's a book in our office, I think. You know, General Eisenhower was still alive. Uh, 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 Harry Truman was still alive. And we, we knew there were going to be state funerals pretty soon. So we, we have a book of preparation of what you do for a state funeral. So, and now, just to back up a little bit, when we got to Washington, after we went to see General Wheeler, he sent us to see the president because General Wheel is the big macher in Washington. And so we go meet the president. He didn't know what macher meant, but we do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> and we, 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 we go see General Wheel. Uh, I'm sorry. We go see the president, and he introduces me. And so... Uh, President Kennedy. Uh, so you had met President Kennedy. Oh, oh, oh I, 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 before I knew him these, well. You knew him. I knew him well. We we met. The president said, "Oh, Lieutenant, just sit in my rocking chair while the general and I have this discussion." So I went and sat in the president's rocking chair, and it's so famous. You see the pictures of him all the time, and he and General Wheel discussed uh, different functions of the office and places that, that the president knew he would see General Wheel and ask him a few questions. And it was a friendly discussion, background, so on and so forth. General Wheel was a wonderful Roman Catholic, uh, wrote uh, everything, never dictated a letter. Everything he wrote out was in calligraphy. Beautiful. And just, he was an English professor that started at West Point. And, and he was just a gentleman's gentleman. So... Anyhow, after that, whenever a dignitary would come to Washington, General Wheel would go meet the dignitary, whether it be at Blair House or Andrews Air Force Base or wherever, and take them to the, that, that was a protocol then, and take them to the White House for the appointment. I would go to the White House before and brief President Kennedy on who was coming, and usually had a little book, probably anywhere from 50 to 100 pages long, and I'd start to brief and President Kennedy would take the book, he'd go through it like this. He was a, a, a mind reader, not, not, not only just a, not a mind reader, but a, uh, he, he, he could absorb, he was a speed reader and he could absorb what he saw in a matter of seconds. He would go through a book a hundred pages long in two minutes and hand it back to me and ask me a question and tell me what page to refer to. Amazing. I mean, the guy, the guy had a, yeah, photo he was very he had a photographic memory, yeah. besides being a speed reader. Uh, so I, I did that quite often, and after a while, he asked me to be his social aide. So Kennedy I, did. Kennedy did. So I told him that I worked for General Wheel, as he knew, and so we had a lot of... Uh, different type of uh, uh, programs and uh, cocktail parties and parties at embassies and things like that that we went to at night. But generally, I was off about three nights a week. So those nights, I would go to the White House 
and serve as uh, the president's social aide. So that was fun. So I got to know him very, very well. Did you meet Jackie Kennedy also? Uh, Jackie Kennedy, when we got there, had just had lost a child. And so I, I, she was just up in Martha's Vineyard and didn't get to meet her for about two or three months. But I did get to meet her, and uh, we can go into that story later. Later, She and I were not real compatible. But Why weren't you compatible, though? I, she was just a very, you know, she was very young, amazingly young when the president got shot. And she was a very charming, beautiful lady. But I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a reception at the White House for uh, all the senators, United States senators. And uh, I was at the beginning of the receiving line, and then there was Jackie Kennedy and President Kennedy. And so the dignitaries, these senators who walk in, and I, they all knew each other, but you still formally, uh, may I present uh, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, to you and blah, 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 and, and then the president. And then they were going out and having cocktails and dancing. Well, Mike Mansfield's wife comes over after all of this is pretty much everybody's there, and she walks over to the president and says, Mr. President, may I have this dance? And certainly, so he dances off on the dance floor, and I, I'm standing at attention there next to Jackie. And Jackie's standing there, and she looks up at me, and she uses a profanity that I will not use, but blah, blah, Lieutenant, just don't stand there. Dance with me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? And so I danced with Jackie, and, uh, but she, she was a tough lady in the White House. She was really tough to get along with. So uh, That's interesting, but look what she had to put up with with Jack. I mean, It, it, it was a difficult thing. Yeah, but, but she and, knew and, about and, it. I mean, pretty much everybody knew I, that she knew. Well, I, I won't go into that part. That, that, that's, that, that, that's part that I kind of keep to myself. So but, let's uh, talk now. So anyway, the, you know the president's been shot. Everybody's jumping around trying to figure out the next step. Uh, here's what we do. We, we get word that the airplane from Dallas with Lyndon Johnson and, and Jackie Kennedy, the body will land at Andrews Air Force Base approximately 6.30 in the afternoon. So about 5 o'clock. Now at this point, LBJ has already been sworn in. He correct. is the president. He is the president. And so we're in our, we, we've got members of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, the Washington Police, the FBI, the Secret Service, and so on, all in a meeting all afternoon at our office planning the next step. And so when the plane lands, uh, they, we have our honor guard out there, and you can see the honor guard and members of the Secret Service uh, taking the body off the plane. You can see in the photographs uh, General Wheel and myself standing there. I'm always a step behind General Wheel. Uh, he had white hair, so in all these pictures that you've seen on television, the general's standing there with long, white, beautiful hair. That my boss, so you can always, I, that's how you spot me. So uh, we put the body into the hearse. Uh, Jackie gets into the hearse with Bobby, and then our car starts to lead the uh, procession to Bethesda Naval Hospital. General Wheel and I get into one of these old banana helicopters. You remember those, those big double 
yep. wing helicopters, and we have the Marine Guard and the Honor Guard from the 3rd Infantry with us. And we take off, we fly across to Bethesda Naval Hospital, we get there, there are thousands of people on the ground in this little bitty landing pad, and they're surrounded. It lands, it was very frightening to be honest, uh, to land that big helicopter in the middle of all these people, but we land safely, we get out, and General Wheel goes to thank the pilot. Hell, the pilot's younger than I am. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was only 23, I guess I just turned 24 at the time. And, you know, 24 years old and just thrust into history, yeah. into the center of... Really into history. You know, the, the, something people today still remember where they are exactly, exactly. When, when President was shot. If you're over 60 years old particularly, you remember it very well. So we go up to the front door of the hospital and General Wheel tells me, you go around to the autopsy room because I'm gonna have the body, we're gonna switch Hearst, I'll have one Hearst bring Jackie up to the front door where the crowd will follow, and then we'll take the body around to the back. So General Wills at the front door, he meets Jackie, takes her up to the 17th floor of the Bethesda Naval Hospital to the presidential suite, where she has already started making notes of what she wants during the funeral. funeral. And so we've got this, we've prepared what we think should be done but she's got her own ideas. So the body comes around the back. I've got the members of the 3rd Infantry uh, Honor Guard from uh, Fort Myer, the same groups that guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and do all the burials at uh, Fort Myer. And so this little special group of six guys with a Lieutenant Sam Bird is the commander of this little uh, group of soldiers, the Honor Guard and they bring it in, they set it on the floor, they leave, and then in the room is myself and three or four technicians. And so we open the casket, pick the body up, which I did, put it on this table. It must have been surreal since you knew him in life. Totally surreal, and, uh, and take him out of the body bag and put him on the table and then, of course, the, uh, there were a lot of photographs taken, x-rays taken. And Were the, you conscious when you took them out of the body bag, I, I just, not, not, to, not I, to disrupt anything, knowing I, I, that this was going to become... Did you ever think this would no. become a controversy for the next hundred years? Jerry, I had never seen a dead man. And here I am looking at the naked body of the President of the United States who was just absolutely, totally physically fit, not an ounce of fat on his body. And, and just, I'm, I'm looking at him and thinking, you know, I took, and I did, take the last photograph, official photograph of him, it wasn't official, it was mine, but the last photograph of him before he left Washington in the, in the Rose Garden when he, I took uh, Marshal Tito from Yugoslavia to meet uh, the president, and the president allowed me, which I was not supposed to, but the president gave me the okay to take pictures that day. That was just a short week or so before 
the president was uh, shot, but that was his last Rose Garden appearance. And here I am talking to him in his office in, in, in the White House, and then I go outside and I'm taking photographs of he and uh, Marshal Tito, and I tell the president goodbye. I don't see him again because until he comes back, until he comes back, bed. and here I am looking at the body of the president. I put him up on the table. Then a technician is in there, and, and was the pathologist in the room no, yet? No, no. But, but before this, the pathologist, the uh, nobody was in the room except us, and. We then scrubbed the body down and cleaned the blood off and, you know, scrub it down. That's after you took the pictures, though. That's, that's after they, the right. official pictures were taken and x-rays and so on. So then, if you can imagine, in an autopsy room, there's the table, and then there are row, two rows of chairs, probably not no more than three or four feet further than where I am sitting from you. And, and then we're elevated just a little bit. So I move around and sit, and I'm the only one there in, in this little section, and I'm sitting looking down about six to eight feet, feet away from the president's body. That's when the pathologists and the doctors come in and start the autopsy. It's not like Irving Stone's movie, uh, JFK, with people running around screaming and who did this and who did that. This, this was very well performed. Well, they were military pathologists, right. right? I mean, they were serious, right. organized people. They That's were, correct. They weren't. The pro there was a problem, though. See, these doctors had not been informed of what they did at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. In Dallas, you know, supposedly, you know, they tried to... Yeah, he had a tracheotomy. Uh, he, he had, had some a tracheotomy, stuff going on. But they didn't know he had a tracheotomy. You know, that could have been a bullet hole. Mm -hmm. and, and so they were dealing with trying to first substantiate where the president was shot and how many times right, he was shot. Right, the entry wound, the exit wound. Could you see That's the right. bullet hole in his you, head? You, you, you could not see the bullet hole. The bu bullet hole obviously came from the rear and then blew off, you know, sa side of his forehead. His whole frontal and, bone got and, blown and, and, off. Right, and into his hairline. And, but it was not as bad because if he had that beautiful wavy hair. It, it was not as bad as they want you to believe how mm -hmm. bad it was. But the interim wounds were from the rear. They, they do the autopsy. It takes them a while. They're looking for the bullet. You know, they think there may be another bullet that hit him from the rear, hit his chest cavity, go down there. Like I said, I'd never seen... Were they talking, the pathologists? Yeah, during, talking. They were talking with each other. Yes. Speculating about what this could be or that right. could be. And, and they did a full autopsy, which is sort of gruesome, and I won't go into those details, but where they cut the chest cavity. You're the doctor. Yeah. And they opened the whole chest cavity. Then they take off the top of the head to get the brain and, and look there. And it's a, it was a well done, even though I'm certainly not a doctor, but I am observant. But they were methodical. methodical they were precise. Careful, exactly. It wasn't just like the Keystone cops go to autopsy school. Absolutely not. It was well done and well documented. 
And uh, so anyhow, the autopsy now is over. Uh, do you think the pathologists at the time chosen to do this incredibly historical thing, do you think they, they embraced the gravity of what they were doing and the fact that there'd be so much controversy about the autopsy, the assassination, the conspiracy theories, the Oliver Stone? Do you think they had any idea at that time what would happen for the next 50 years? Th that's a very good question, Jerry. That, that really is. I, I don't. I think they went about this, like you said, in a very methodical way. They, were very, they wanted to make sure they got it right. They wanted to know where the bullet came from. They wanted to know if there are any fragments of bullets for proof-wise. They wanted to make sure they got every fragment. They wanted to make sure of the direction the bullet came from. And I guess in their minds, that this is the president of the United States, and we better get it right. So that was their attitude. I don't, I don't think they nor I were thinking about, at the time, conspiracy, about Lee Harvey Oswald. We, we don't even know. We and this is before Jack him. Ruby was shot, This still. is before Jack Ruby was shot. This is, this is 6.30, basically started the autopsy about 7 o'clock, the autopsy at 7.30, the autopsy gets finished about 10.30 or 11. I, I'm still in my green uniform that the general and I had on, our regular Army Greens. So the, we, the general comes down, and he had given me a 45 pistol as we walked out of the office. Now, since I was at Fort Benning, where we shot guns, uh, pistols, and I'm a pretty good shot because I've done that all my life. Uh, he straps a pistol on me. He says, don't you let anything happen to that body. Mm -hmm. And so from the time we got in there, you know, I'm there. I don't let anybody in the room or if they come were in. Were people, was were the press there what, outside? The, the, could the, you see them or you didn't You couldn't even... see them. They were kept away from the room. But Every now and then there was a, a, an FBI agent stuck his head in that I knew and wanted to know at what stage we were. And I tell him, another Secret Service man that I did not know came in, wanted to make sure everything was okay. But nobody else came in and sat there. So, the How long did it take? Took, took about three and a half hours. Very thorough, yeah. And then we locked the room down and we put guards on both doors and then the general and I jump in a car, we fly back, our driver, we fly back to uh, Fort Myer, we change and put on our blue uniforms. While we're at Fort Myer, while we're changing, he's, we send the car over to the White House to pick up the clothes that Jackie had called that she wanted the president buried in. He comes over, comes back, picks us up. Was he buried in a suit? In or? a suit, a, a beautiful suit, and uh, a white shirt, black tie, and, and, and comes back, picks us up, all in a matter of about 40 minutes. Uh, we did this. We're back at the uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. General Wheel goes back upstairs with... Uh, 
to, to see uh, Jackie Kennedy and keep making plans. I go back into the autopsy room, unlock it, and then let Gala's funeral home from Washington come in. It wasn't military, it was the Gala's funeral home. So I sat there another four hours till four o'clock in the morning watching them put the president back together and it was just amazing. And uh, when they finished, I, I had the clothes with me. When they finished, I walked over to the table and I helped two of the um, guys from Gollards dress the president and pick him up and put him in the casket. And uh, we, uh, Has that, this that, that was, that, that's where it got a bit emotional. It's the only time, my father's 95 now, it's the only time I've ever seen him cry was during when JFK was shot during the funeral procession. Yeah. I mean, and so I know it was well, emotional. We're still, this is sort of like an out-of-the-body experience, Jerry. I mean, it's like, this is my job, I've got to do it, I'm here. You know, I, I didn't feel, honestly, I did not feel the emotion at the time. Uh, it was great emotion when we heard he was shot, but all during this period, it's my job to You're doing your body, job. and I'm doing my job. Do you think, in, in retrospect now, uh, looking back at your life so far, was did this in any way, I mean, you've had so much success, you're a philanthropist, you give back to the community. Did this help define your life? Was this a defining moment in your life? that you carried with you? Did you reflect back on this later in your life at points and say, wow, I was right there in history like Forrest Gump or something? That, that's another good question. And my wife asked me that same question often. And you probably told her this story <laughs> 500 <laughs> times, I could, right? could, But I couldn't. I, during the uh, uh, autopsy, there was a knock at the door, and I went to see who it is. It was a person from the State Department, and they give me this long two-page National Secrets Act document that says I cannot talk to anyone about what I see, saw or what I did for 15 years. In the, from the State Department? From the State Department for 15 years, and under penalty of, I think it was at that time, $25,000 or 10 years in prison. So I, I read the document because yeah. I, was, I wanted to know what I was signing, and so I signed it. So for 15 years, they, 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 my, my parents knew I were there. I was there, they saw me on television. Uh, and I spoke to them uh, from a tape, pay telephone just to tell them where I was uh, before the uh, autopsy ever started in, in the hospital. And Why do you think they were so concerned about secrecy? I mean, we know that, in fact, there were rumors starting from the beginning, but, you know, the average person didn't know about them, but in Washington people were talking mm -hmm. what really happened. Why well, do you well, think they well, were so concerned? Well, there was a Warren report, for instance. So, so they, they were talking about it. Uh, the, the, there was a Warren investigation and the Warren report, which was, by the way, very accurate. There have been hundreds of books written about it, about conspiracy theories. Have you, have you so read so all the, uh, I've, I've, followed it, the movies, the books, have you read? What, what do you the, think? The only, do you, one, only one very definitive good book uh, written, 
and that was Case Closed by Gerald Posner. That, that's the only book that really speaks the truth and, and tells you what happened. The rest of the and books And what does I've he read, say? He said there's one shooters. One shooter. He didn't believe in the grassy knoll. No. The Zapruder film didn't change his believe mind. Me, 15 years and like one day after the assassination, I was opening the door at 8 o'clock in the morning to my sporting goods business in Baton Rouge. And I, I, I drive up, I walk up to my door, and the street's kind of deserted. And there, there are one or two of my people who are just getting there. And I'm unlocking the door, and these two gentlemen in a black sedan get out in black suits and white shirts and a tie and walk up to me and said, are you Richard Lipsy? I said, yes. And I said, were you in the United States Army in 1962 to four? I said, yes. Did you watch the autopsy of President John F. Kennedy? I said, yes. He said, we're from the House Committee on Assassinations and we want to interview you. So they came into my office. Now you can imagine 15 years, I have not discussed this with anybody. It's the, honestly the last thing on my mind. You know, I'm running a business now. My father had passed away years ago and I'm trying to make make something out of this business. And uh, so we go in my office and I said, I, 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 for history, if I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I don't know what questions are going to ask me, but I want to tape this. And I had a tape recorder, so I pull out a tape recorder. So the fellows from uh, the House Committee on Assassinations opened their briefcase and said, well, if you're going to tape it, we're going to tape it. So they taped it. And so they put up charts and this and that. And I recall to the best I can what happened in the autopsy. So and, 15 and, years later, there were still You know, it's all on the internet now. They've opened it up and it's all on the internet now, even the interview. And, Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter. The bullet came from one direction. There were no other bullets. The man was shot by Lee he Harvey He was a good Oswald. shot. He was trained in the Marines. He, he was trained in the Marines. He, he had a Manlicher Carcano, he, he, uh, a bolt-action uh, rifle, He had a little right? Italian. It was an Italian uh, Manlicher. Uh, Did you ever shoot one? Cal Did Absolutely. You ever shoot one? I had, we sold the damn guns in those days for like, Twenty-nine ninety-five. Unbelievable. Uh, Did you ever see the irony in that you were at the f autopsy of President Kennedy, shot with a bolt-action rifle, and then spend your whole life in the firearms business? I, I, I did. A little irony to it. And uh, matter of fact, I, I, I've had a replica done of the gun uh, after that period, not before, but after that 15-year period with the same gun, the same scope, and to show people, because then, by then, it, the word had gotten out that I had been there and everybody wanted everybody to talk wanted about Everybody wanted to it. hear the story. So I had to show, show that to them. But I, I really never spoke about it, Jerry, until probably 10 years after that, a member of our Rotary Club, a very good friend, was president of the club, and we had had dinner a few years before, and, I kind of ramble through the story like I'm doing with you, 
and he asked me to speak to our local Rotary Club, and that was the first time I really had ever done it, and since then I've done it multiple times. I've been on, you know, CNN radio and uh, C-SPAN and uh, been interviewed several times, but my, my wife and my daughters have wanted me to write a book. I didn't. What I did, though, was sit down and I did about a three-and-a-half-hour tape of all the incidences Yeah, your grandkids are going to uh, want that. About the White House and my time with John F. Kennedy and uh, then about the autopsy and what happened afterwards. And let me just finish by saying uh, this subject, Jerry, by one thing. You know, after Kennedy was shot, you know, the police immediately recognized it came from the Texas School Book Depository. We've all been up there on You've the sixth been floor there museum. They, they, they went over there, they rushed, they shut the building down, okay? They go through, they find the gun up there. Nobody's left the building. The, 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 the manager of the building accounts for every person in there except Lee Harvey Oswald, and he himself saw Lee Harvey Oswald right after the shooting come down the stairs, Amazing. go out the door, Amazing. and he's the only one that is not there. So he goes back to his apartment. He, he gets on a bus. The bus doesn't move. He can't go anywhere. Gets off the bus, walks a few blocks, gets in a taxi, and goes to his apartment, uh, a house that, that he's living in. And the landlady sees him come in without a coat on, stay there a very short period of time, come out with his jacket zipped up with something bulky under his jacket. Unbelievable. Walks, we're going we're gonna to have to do know, a rep because we're running okay. out of time. Anyway, anyhow, to make a long story short, there's nobody there to pick him up, carry him away. There's nobody there to rush him off. There's The, the man, there's no help. It, it's a one-man job. It's a nutcase that shot the president. There you go. On that note, uh, we have so much more I'd like to talk to Richard about. <laughs> He's an amazing person, very generous philanthropist, incredibly successful businessman, part of history. Thank you for joining us here today. We'll see you next week. The Grassroots Network Summer Podcast Series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on Turnkey Vacation Rentals, contact Mark Viola at mark.viola at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the Grassroots Network in your community.